Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm excited for Hebrews. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you are. Some one person is excited. That's really good. Um, you should have received... You should have received two hands out. Hands out. If there were hands out, don't give them any money around here, okay? Um, we pay our volunteers well. Um, you should have received a green sheet and a yellow sheet. Mine is white, but a green and a, and a yellow sheet. I'll go over them very quickly with you. Uh, some people have no interest in the first sheet, but that's okay. I'll wake you up when I'm finished with it. Um, this is, if you're interested in, as you go along in this study, if you'd like a commentary uh, to help you. Um, there are a lot of ones here. These, many of these are great scholars. They're all good scholars. But uh, Kent Hughes, Warren Wearsby, he's meat and potatoes. He's great. Uh, A.W. Pink, uh, called Exposition of Hebrews. A.W. Pink, you got to like to read A.W. Pink. He's thick, so's the book. I mean, it's kind of like that. But, uh, but he's great stuff. Dwight Pentecost, very good. Faith That Endures is a great commentary. Um, God's Last Word to Man by Campbell Morgan, also Triumphs of the Faith by Campbell Morgan, both really good. Sir Robert Anderson writes Types in Hebrews. John Owen, it's just called Hebrews. John Owen, a, a uh, Puritan author, really good. Uh, some of these guys are reformed, some of these are not. I don't discriminate when it comes to commentaries. I just think they've all got usually something good to offer. Uh, David Pawson, the first one up on top, very good. So anyhow, all these are good. Kent Hughes is great. He's the third one down, an anchor for the soul. He, uh, he was the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois for decades. And he was like, he's great. And he's written a lot of good commentaries, great stuff. So anyhow, if you're interested in these things, that's great. The second sheet, uh, yours is yellow, right? Or what is it? Yellow? Um, uh, as we get into the book of Hebrews, people give it a lot of different themes. One of the themes that people give it is the priesthood of Christ, which certainly it's about. Um, but others see it, and I say it this way, it's just easier to call it, Jesus is better. Twelve times in, in the book, it says better. So it, it, and, and, and so I, anyhow, I've put them in bold uh, for you to read. Maybe we'll look back on this later on, but Let's get into this tonight. This, books vary in the Bible. Um, some books don't require a lot of introduction. I think Hebrews does require some introduction. Um, some people think that Hebrews is a really difficult book. And, uh, and, and many of you may feel that way. If you've tried to read it before, you, you might have gotten a little wigged out, like, what, what's going on here? You know? and, and especially some of the problem, what are called the problem passages. Uh, chapter 6... Chapter 10, it's easy to conclude or at least get really confused and think, wait, is he saying that I can lose my salvation, that I've sinned, I can never come back? Is that what he's saying? Uh, no, that's not what he's saying. But um, anyhow, there's a lot that, that can confuse people as, as we go through it. I, so I want to just sort of walk us through a few things here before we get into the book. We're going to be in the first chapter, which is a reasonable place to start. Um, we won't do more than probably three or four verses. I mean, if you know the first three verses, they're pretty thick. So uh, and we'll, we'll move along a little faster next week. But um, so let's talk about things. Again, I say, you know, some of these books require less introduction than others. So when was it written? It's not 
it's not obvious right off the top, but it appears. First of all, it's written in light of the topic in it. It's written before the temple was destroyed, which was in 70 AD. So it's written before that, and, but then in light of some of the other things it says, most people would conclude somewhere between 61, 67 AD. Um, some of your, I know that your, your heart rate just went up and your palms are sweating and you're thinking, that's so exciting. Um, the reason that's important is it gives us a clue as to who the audience is. Well, first of all, we know by the title, they're Jewish believers, which is a problem for a lot of us. We don't see that right away, even though the title says this but they're Jewish believers. But I, the reason I'm, I'm talking about the date and being important is that gives us the indicator, when did Christ ascend? 32 AD. So now we're talking about second generation Hebrew believers. Um, those of us who, who got saved, you know, Renee and I are an example of that, and I know many of you are here. Um, you know, we got saved out of paganism, and uh, in, in, in our case, you know, we, we get saved, we get married, and then we start having kids thinking, mm, golly nits, uh, I know what it was like for us. You know, we understood what we were saved from. What will it be like for my kids? You know, what, what will their walk be like, right? I mean, that's the thing. When you, and generations are a really interesting uh, uh, concept to think about when you walk through the scripture. Because you see first generation, second generation, third generation, and how different they can be. You know, Abraham. And then Isaac, yeah, he's a little different than dad. And then Jacob and Esau, like, whew, they're on the loose, you know? And so this whole idea of generations is an, an important concept. So second generation believers, um, so that means that by now, and of course, the setting, we're not, it's not clear, although there are some pretty good suppositions. Your, your first inclination is to think, well, this is to the church in Jerusalem, the Hebrew, you know, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem may well be. Uh, I happen to think that while that's very possible, Rome is a great candidate. Uh, I think we forget sometimes that about half, half of the members in the church in Rome were Jewish. Um, and so it could also be to, to those in Rome. I don't know. I wouldn't you know, try to make you know, doctrine out of any, uh, any of that. But um, So in any event, but that means that by now, you know, Stephen has been martyred. Uh, you know, chapter 7 of Acts, chapter 12, Apostle James has been martyred. By the time you get uh, Acts 13, Acts 26, others have been martyred. Um, the author's objective seems to be three things, and this is important for us. To combat apostasy, that's a big deal today, of course. It's always a big deal, but it was a big deal then. Um, to encourage the readers to push on to maturity, boy, is that important today. The church easily becomes a mile wide and an inch deep in terms of you know, our depth of understanding and our walk with Jesus Christ, and that was the case back then as well. Um, and to comfort them in their persecutions, which is not an issue for us right now, but I believe it's right around the corner for us. Um, and before we go further, we're talking about people, Jewish Christians, and, and that's important in the Bible for a number of reasons, of course. But, uh, you know, so many of the epistles that we're used to reading are written to, for the most part, Gentile believers. These are Jewish believers. And this is not the only book that's written to Hebrew believers. I'll get into that in a moment. But uh, the reason for those concerns 
about you know, combating apostasy, urging them on to maturity, etc. Is that these are Hebrew believers. It's hard for us to understand all of this if you've come from a very religious background of some sort. And, and in, one, in one sense, we can kind of relate to this as, as Gentiles. Uh, I think that in our day and age, the most, um, the clearest example would be those who've come out of Roman Catholicism. You know, you get saved and, and you're, you're torn between I love my family and I love our traditions and I you know, love getting together at Christmas and Easter and those types of things. But I don't believe all that anymore. I don't buy those traditions in the church. I, I'm born again. I see it this way. I understand what the Bible says. And I want to walk the way Jesus wants me to walk. And yet there's that tug to come back to, to family. And that's a, that's a real tension for anybody, for, well, for the most many people who've come out of Roman Catholicism. And yet that is only a taste of what someone, and even today we see it in Israel, someone who gets saved uh, out, of, out of orthodoxy, you know, the orthodox um, Jewish faith. Um, even today, certainly back then, but even today, many who are just cut off where the family sits Sheva for them. This Sheva, if you're not familiar with that, it's like, that's a funeral. Um, seven, Sheva, seven. To sit seven days and mourn their death. So the family often will sit Sheva for them, doesn't recognize them on the street, never talks to them, that sort of thing. Uh, because they've left, you know, orthodoxy, and they've gone on to follow Christ. And even more so, of course, when you're talking about first century Israel. Uh, first century Judaism. So, so these are people who they've come out of that, but there's this tug to come back. I mean, think about it, even when you read the book of Acts, you read about uh, the apostles who were still going up to the temple, right? The temple was standing, they would go up, they would pray. We associate the temple with sacrifices and things like that. And we can make the mistake of thinking, wait a minute, you're born again, what are you doing going up to the temple for? Well, they're not participating in those sacrifices for sin. That's not the idea, but they're going up there two times a day, they would go up to pray, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they were still participating in those things. It wasn't wrong for them to do. But certainly there was that tongue to come on back to that. And that would have been the case in many ways anywhere uh, in the world at that time. But... Um, so uh, we'll get into more of that as we go through the book. But uh, the author's approach, we'll deal with the author in a minute, uh, is really to highlight um, or to stress the superiority of Mashiach, of Christ, to stress his superiority to these, what I'll call three pillars of Judaism, angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. Most of us don't think, I mean, we think angels. Ooh, cool. Uh, Moses, we think of him, yeah, he's in the beginning of the book. And the Levitical priesthood, a lot of us are like, ah, uh, yeah, I don't really get all that. It's an important topic, especially, and, and if you've tried to read through Leviticus before, or Leviticus, I'll get to that in a minute. If you've tried to read through Hebrews before, you may have found yourself getting hung up on, wait, what's, what? What's all the stuff about priesthood and, and all of that? You may find yourself um, getting hum, hung up on that. We'll get through that. Uh, I, th I think a lot of people think this is a difficult book, and I don't think it's a difficult book. I think it's, it's sometimes we're, we're not familiar with terminology or some of the concepts, and if we can clear some of that up, it's a lot easier to, to move through. Um, so it's not a contrast for them between bad versus good. It's a contrast between that which is good and that which is better or best, Christ, right? 
Um, so let's deal with authorship. No, hardly anybody has an authorized version anymore, you know, King James authorized version, because in that, it always said that the author was Paul. Um, most people today, it's interesting to me how it's become fashionable in more recent years. I mean, I, you know, we got saved and I got my first King James Bible and we started attending like a Calvary Chapel in Denver. You know, everybody kind of, well, seemed like everybody just understood that the author of Hebrews was Paul. And uh, in the last 40 years, it doesn't seem like many people believe that anymore. I, I won't take a poll, but I'm, I have feeling in this room, a lot of people have all kinds of different opinions because everybody is told them there's all these different possibilities. And so some people say that, well, you know, no, no, no. I mean, it easily could have been Barnabas or it could have been Apollos. It could have been Luke. It could have been Silas, even Priscilla as in Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla has been proposed. Here's the problem. There's no evidence for any of that. There really is no evidence for any of that. Some of you are thinking, uh, is there a reason you're going through all this? Yeah, it's important. That's why. So if it bothers you, just take a snooze on and I'll wake you up in a moment. But it is important who the author is because this author has a point to make. And if we understand who the author is, it's interesting, by the way, one of the main candidates for authorship is Apollos, other than the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, Apollos, I don't know who, who remembers where Apollos was from. Great. Alexandria, Egypt, okay, which was a big deal in those days. You know, like the, the, the library in Alexandria had the largest collection of books in the entire world burned down, which was a real bummer. Uh, but um, so he's from there. He was a brilliant intellectual. He was, um, he had the gift of speech. I was going to say gift of gab. He could, but he was eloquent and people really loved Apollos. And, uh, and one of the reasons, by the way, that people sometimes say that they don't believe it was Paul, you know, we read an English Bible. We know it's written in Greek first. So Paul writes in what's called Koine Greek, which is like common Greek, street language Greek. So the common Greek of the day. Anybody who knows Greek would say, when they read this in Greek, they say, this can't be Paul, because the style of Greek is high Greek. That's not his style. That's the main argument that people have against Pauline authorship. Um, I'm trying not to get into the weeds on this, although some of you probably think I already am. But Apollos, okay, Apollos is from Alexandria. So here's an interesting thought. The first church father from Alexandria who wrote anything, or that anything that's existing today, is Clement, not to be confused with Clement of, Ale of Rome, but Clement of Alexandria, so 150-ish, 150, 150 to 200 AD. He says it was Paul. So if it is Apollos who wrote it, even his homeboys don't believe it's him, okay? Um, Clement said, no, it's Paul. Um, I want to give you, again, for those of you who are interested in this, and I think you should be, here are some things to think about as far as Pauline. Don't worry, we got time, we're going to do this, but I want you to think about some of this. Um, some people will say as they read it, well, this doesn't, this epistle, if it is from Paul, it doesn't begin like Paul's stuff. It just starts with God, who at sundry times and in diverse ways, you know, he spoke, you know, uh, spoken, all, spoken all these different ways to the prophets. Um, that's true. Um, there are some interesting things that are written. But here's one. I, I want you to think about this before we go any further. There are eight 
epistles in your New Testament that are called Jewish epistles or Hebrew epistles. You may not have known that, but because it doesn't, it, most of your Bibles aren't labeled in that way. You know, if you're going to think, well, if there's one, it must be Hebrews. You'd be right. But it starts with Hebrews. As you go through the New Testament, you know, you go um, first and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. What's the next one? James. James. Who's that written to? To the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Oh, that's interesting. Then what? Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad to know you. Yeah. E even if you have to use your table of contents, that's okay. First and second Peter, um, it's pretty clear he's writing to a, a, to a Jewish Christian audience. Then first, second, third John, and Jude. Jude is written to a Jewish audience. Uh, certainly, I mean, all of John's epistles are included as, as the eight. But the, the last two, especially the third John, it's very clearly, in, in my opinion, uh, written to a, a Jewish audience because he's talking even there uh, about the problem of anti-Semitism in the church. He's talking about us, meaning cr Jewish believers. And, and when I, I just use that pronoun, now let's come back to Hebrews. One of the things that you'll find throughout the book of Hebrews is that the author is talking about the fathers or our fathers and us. He uses the, that terminology throughout. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, our fathers, the fathers of our faith. Now we can say, yeah, they're ours too. Well, yeah, in a sense, clearly because we're, we have the same faith as Abraham exercised and all, but he's talking about blood and faith. So he's talking about Abraham as one of our fathers, meaning Jewish, and us, meaning Jew, Judaism. Because uh, he's writing to, anyhow, you know that. So um, I don't want to get in the weeds on some of these things. But here's another a couple things you want to think about. You may be aware that it, when you've gone through a study in Thessalonians, um, which is not a Jewish epistle, but when, when you've gone through that study, you might have learned or, or recognized, you get the Second Thessalonians 2, verse 2. Paul makes a reference there to a, um, to a counterfeit epistle you know, supposed to have come from him, but it didn't. And he says, toward the end of that epistle, well, at the end of that epistle, he said that I, I sign this with my own hand as I do each of my epistles. Do you get that? As I do, I sign with my own hand as I do each of my letters. And what does he sign it as? Actually, if you look there, you'll find it. Second Thessalonians chapter two, what does he say there? It's okay, look it up. What does it say? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, okay, verse 18, what does it say? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You can look in any one of his epistles, that's his sign-off. He says, it's my mark. This is how you know it's from me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Amen. I would know we, we haven't even touched verse 1 of Hebrews 1 yet, but why don't you turn to Hebrews 13, verse 25. Yep. What does it say? Grace be with you all. Amen. Come on, John. Cut me a break. Anybody can say that. I know. I know. Except that in what epistles besides Paul's do you find that? Goose egg. 
with the one exception where you find the word grace mentioned, that's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's not a sign-off, it's an exhortation. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does that prove anything, John? Okay, if you don't, if you don't see it, that's okay. You don't have to see it as a proof. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll give you that. But what you find is that these incidentals, you have to start to ask yourself, how many of these incidentals can I discard before I start to accept that they're all pointing in the same direction? I guess there's one more that I would say, and you'll be relieved to know that. Um, and that would be, let me see, I had it in my notes here. I know what I want to say. I want to make sure. Oh, no, it's the second to last one. <laughs> the second to last one. Um, Timothy. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Colossians 1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. Paul says, Timothy accompanies me where I go. I've, I haven't read any epistle by any other author where we read that Timothy accompanies any, any other apostle. But he makes the comment in chapter 13 of Hebrews. And know that our brother Timothy has been set free and with whom I shall see you soon. Okay, so he's planning on traveling with Timothy. Again, you can say, really, John, does that prove anything? I didn't say it proved. It's just you have these incidentals that start to all point in one direction. Here's the final one I'll say. A, uh, a very important phrase comes out of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Many of you may know it already. The just shall live by faith. Paul in his epistle to the Romans makes that comment. Chapter 1 verse 17 that the just shall live by faith. Paul in his epistle to the Galatians he says that the just shall live by faith. And whoever it is in Hebrews chapter 11, or 10 rather, says the just shall live by faith. Again, you're saying, really? Well, here's the interesting thing. As you understand the tone and the purpose of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews, especially chapter 10 to 11, there are different themes there going. Paul is talking about justification in Romans chapter 1. What kind of people live by faith, the just, meaning the justified. Um, the just do what in Galatians? They live, right? The whole theme in, in Galatians is don't be, don't, the, the law kills, don't get buried by the law, but live, right? So the just, the just live by faith, Romans chapter one. The just live by faith, Galatians chapter three. Hebrews Chapter 10, how shall the just live? By faith. You think, does that prove anything, John? No, it doesn't prove anything. It actually points to a greater miracle if it's not Paul, because you, you certainly see the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit in using that, fra that, that phrase three times. So uh, some of you are glad to know that I'm just about done with this. There are five dangers, five warnings. And, and if you're familiar with Hebrews you know there are a lot of warnings in it. Um, there's the warning that we find, especially when we get to chapter 2, against drifting. Boy, that's a good one for all of us. You don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's. Uh, no, you don't have to. Only a few of us remember that commercial. Um, rye bread. Anyhow. Um, 
you don't have to be Jewish to be concerned about drifting. We all have that problem. The danger of disobedience in chapters 3 to 4. Uh, the danger of not progressing toward maturity. Uh, chapters 5 through 6, the danger of willful sin in chapter 10. And the, the warning against indifference. I see a lot of that in the church today. You probably too. In, uh, in Hebrews uh, 12. Okay. Um, two last things. There's, a, there's this concept of falling away, which actually, you know, I, I, we're, we're studying Hebrews, but now that I've said there are eight Hebrew epistles, I would challenge you to read through them. Because as you do, I think you're going to find something you're not used to finding in the other epistles to what we'll call the, the Gentile Christian churches. And that warning is a warning against falling away. Why would one be concerned with falling away? In fact, that seems to ring a dinger with, with Hebrews 6, because we get very confused. I think we, you know, if you've read it, you, you, you've, you've read through chapter 6, you go, ooh, what's, going, what's happening? Is it saying I can lose my salvation? In chapter 10, much the same way. Um, no, but what is he talking about? What is it that he's really talking about through all of this? What's the, what's the danger that James is talking about? What's the danger that Peter's talking about? Why is he talking about falling away? What's the loss? What's the loss, the danger of the loss that he's talking about? See, our, our inclination is to think it's loss of salvation. So with that in mind, I go to these three things that I don't think we think about enough. But it's important for us to understand, first of all, as Christians. Secondly, as we read the book of Hebrews, what does it mean to be saved? Three words, justified, sanctified, glorified. Those are three aspects of salvation. We tend not to think of our salvation in the way I'm about to say it. That there are three tenses of salvation. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Most of us don't think of salvation that way. What we think of is we give an altar call, someone comes forward, big applause, as we should, all right? We think they did, they're in. No, that's the starting gun. That's the starting gun. The rest is the Christian walk, the race, whatever you want to call it, the terminology you want to use it. It's staying in Christ, walking with Christ. Why? Because there's reward ahead. So, coming forward or, 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 or sitting with your friend and praying the, Christian, you know, the, the, um, the sinner's prayer, that's when one receives Christ and you're justified. Your sins are washed away. You've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay? With me? And we use the term justified. I know it's, it's, you know, this is not exactly right, but it's a good way to remember what justification means. Just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, that's not literally what it means, but it's close enough for jazz. Okay, and then, you know, that's receiving the gift by faith of everlasting life, right? Knowing that, that you're saved, you're in, your, your sins are forgiven, and you'll be with Christ in heaven one day. Sanctification, something as we walk with him, the spirit of God is doing a work in our lives. But you have to walk with him. 
right? You, you're, not, you're not in danger of losing your salvation, but you still have to walk. You know, that, that's the process of sanctification. And, we're, we get, we're, and you can describe this a lot of different ways. I'm getting closer to him. There's a lot of different ways of saying it. But that process, we're becoming more like him. We're getting closer to him. That's the process of sanctification. It, it works over the years of our lives. And then one day when we close our eyes in death or, um, or we're raptured, glorification, we're glorified when we're there with him. Three tenses of the Christian faith. It's important for us to understand that because, again, what does the author mean? And I'll say Paul because I believe it's the Apostle Paul. What does he mean then about this danger of falling away? Is he really talking about losing one's justification? No, he's not. The issue has to do with losing reward. Lose, or, or We'll all be glorified, by the way. I don't want you to misunderstand. Saved, you know, you're justified, you're walking with Christ, you're being sanctified. One day we're going to be with God. We're going to be there with him in heaven and we'll be glorified. Uh, and maybe the best way to say it is some more than others, depending upon how they walked in this Christian life. We like to think that God is a total socialist and everybody gets the same thing. No, he's not. Just read the Bible more. You'll find that that's not true. So everybody will be glorified, some, I guess you could say, more than others, having to do with the rewards they'll receive based upon how they walked with Christ here in this life. And that becomes important as we study the book. I know it's here somewhere. God... And that's how he starts the book. I do believe it's the Apostle Paul. I believe it's the Apostle Paul for the reasons I've said, but also to answer the question, well, then why doesn't he announce himself? Well, read the book of Acts. It becomes pretty evident why he doesn't announce himself. Every time he goes to Jerusalem, they want to kill him. And they don't take seriously anything that he says. So by being anonymous in his writing, it's very clear as you read through Hebrews, this, the author has this immense depth of understanding and knowledge of the Hebrew traditions. And he brings those to bear as he talks to Hebrew Christians. And probably, I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest intellects of, of the world is the Apostle Paul. I suspect he has the ability to write Koine Greek or high-level Greek. Um, and that may be one of his ways of of, of, of creating this an anonymity. But in any event, he doesn't introduce himself. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. You might notice there's a it's in italics there. His is in italics. He's spoken to us by son, his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The Greek word there is not world like terra firma, the globe, but as in aeon, ages is the Greek word, ages. He made it all. Who, being the brightness of his glory, being the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels 
as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, we'll just close in prayer and leave it at that. We're entering into what you could call, and I don't say it to freak you out, uh, the Leviticus of the New Testament. If you've tried to read through Leviticus, you say, oh, it gets tedious. But if you study Leviticus, it becomes very insightful. And so it's a difference in how we approach the book. And in a kind of a similar way, not that, I mean, Hebrews is a lot easier to read, but um, it will give great insight as we, as we seek to study it. God, who at various times, or I guess the King James says it, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. God, he doesn't begin with you know, introduction by saying, you know, I'm Paul or I'm Apollos or I'm any of these people. God did this. He's spoken through all sorts of things. God has, I mean, and he speaks, he still speaks today. But again, he's speaking to Hebrew Christians about their fathers in the faith. So God, in the past and in various ways, all kinds of different ways, has spoken to our fathers or spoken to the prophets, to our fathers, all kinds of ways. I mean, think about this for a moment. Hebrews uh, chapter 19, the heavens declare, the heavens speak. That's the word that's used in Hebrew, declare, davar. They, they speak the glory of God. When you look at the heavens, whether you're looking at a beautiful, you know, sunny day without, you know, chemtrails, uh, but, you know, you're looking at the clouds, you're looking at the, the, the sun you look in all of its glory. It's really an amazing thing to, to really look at the sky, let alone at night. And, and to, at, at various times of night, you know, it was outside early the other morning and say, okay, well, there's Saturn and there's Mars and there's Venus on the horizon. These are these three planets in opposition, you know, and then everything else going around as you watch the heavens as they move, you just go out and look at different times of the night, how everything is moving. Yeah, we're moving, but that, to us, they're moving. Um, you know, God has spoken to mankind all sorts of ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork day to night, Day to day, utter speech, night to night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there is no language where their voice is not heard. It's just a question of whether we're listening. See, the question in all of this is, are we listening? In most cases, no, we're, we're, we're listening, we're watching, we're thinking about, you know, what, what TikTok says or what's on <laughs> Facebook or, or, or Twitter or, you know, what, 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 you know, whatever, what Washington is saying. But are we listening to God. He speaks today still through the heavens. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their words go out to the end of the world. Um, one that I think we all know, but let's look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, what may be known of God is manifest in them because God has shown it to them. And yet God's wrath is being exposed or, or being going to be poured out on them and is being poured out on them because they deny it. 
We see that in spades in our time today. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, think of his invisible attributes, his, his, his brilliance, his wisdom, the depth of knowledge. Just think about just how everything works, let alone the, you know, the, the aspects of physics, all these things that, that come from God in the first place. All these things, these invisible attributes, just studying the, bi- the, the body and thinking about how everything works. For, you know, it's amazing how many people today believe evolution because we were raised being taught evolution and, and you know, we've gotten to the point where now these kids believe evolution. Everybody believes these things, and yet the truth of God is there for everybody to know. It's there for everybody to know. You don't have to go to church to know the truth of God. It's there right in front of us. The sky itself, the Bible says, is declaring it for us. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, his Godhead, so that, so that people are without excuse. You know, we've talked before about Genesis 1.14, where on the fourth day, you know, God makes the lights that he puts in the sky, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to, to rule the night. And even that, the moon doesn't have its own light. We all know this, but I mean, it's a reflection of the sun, but the, the lesser light to rule the night. I always love this phrase. And he also made the stars. Like, <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, while we're here, you know, let's put the stars out there. And yeah, when you study these things, and, and especially, I know we've talked about this a lot in the past, so I won't go into it. We don't have a lot of time. But um, God set the stars, yes, to be there for signs and for seasons. But we studied this a lot when we were in Job, in those last chapters of Job, that those stars are there declaring a gospel message, beginning with the Virgo, the Virgin, going on all the way on out. The gospel message was, was there for Adam and Eve to see, and, 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 and for everyone after the fall, it was still there for them to see. Um, it's amazing what God has done. You think about it, he's spoken, right, right? He says through sundry, at sundry times, various times, and in various ways, God spoke in the past to our fathers through the prophets. He spoke to Abraham. Abraham heard the Lord, and he saw the Lord. Certainly we see that in Genesis 18, but there were other times where God appeared to Abraham. I often think, you know, Genesis 15, how mind-boggling that must have been to Abraham to see God, and then God puts him into this deep sleep and this, this horrid darkness comes over him. After God has said, now take these animals and cut them up and lay one side against the other. And that was to, you know, people who understand how things worked in ancient times, that was you know, we cut it, call today cutting a deal. That's, that idea comes out of that, cutting a covenant, where two men would make a covenant together. They would take animals, cut them in half, lay them side against side, and then they would walk in a figure eight between them. And they would say, should I break this covenant? May what happened to these animals happen to me. Right? That was cutting a covenant. God tells Abraham to to cut the animals up, but then he puts Abraham into this sleep of sorts. But then Abraham sees this smoking fire pot, God, walking between it. They too didn't walk 
God did it. God made the covenant, and he said, I'm going to keep this covenant. And he said, I'm going to keep this covenant. And you and your descendants will leave this area, but 400 years from now, your descendants will come back here. And he, and he tells them how big the area is going to be. I mean, you think about these things, the way that God appeared to him and the detail that God shared with Abraham multiple times that God appeared to Abraham multiple times that he spoke to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. I mean, Joseph, we, we all know about Joseph and his dreams and the wisdom that God gave him. Uh, it, you know, Moses, what was that like for Moses, the burning bush? Take off your shoes. The ground where you're standing is holy ground. And God speaks to him from the burning bush. You know, we have Bibles. We say we read them, but, and we do. Yeah, I know you do. I'm not I'm being a little facetious. But we have this tendency to listen to so much other stuff. But you hold the burning bush, in a sense, in your lap right now. God is still speaking. He didn't stop speaking. God spoke in the past. He speaks today. You know, I, um, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the Revelation study. A great book, if you get a chance to read it. Um, it's broken up into actually 25 different um, episodes, so it's, it's easy to read, you know, a chapter at a time. It's only a few pages. Uh, by Don Richardson, who was a, he had been a, a missionary, very much a missiologist, and he uh, writes about missionaries, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Uh, based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Um, great book, and he, basically his, his idea through it all is he wants people to understand that no matter what color, no matter where they are on planet Earth, so many people already know the truth. We always say, what about the guy on the island? You know, what about the guy on the island that's never seen a missionary? Here's, here's one example, I'll leave it with this, from, uh, from Eternity in Their Hearts. In 1795, uh, deep in the Burma jungle, um, there was a, a missionary who arrived, uh, got off the boat. Hundreds of tribesmen ran out. I'm sure his heart was beating a little fast when he saw that happening. Um, hundreds of tribesmen ran out to meet him because he was a white man. They hadn't seen a white man. But they were told in some of the writings and some of the oral traditions of their fathers that a white man would come and tell them about the God they'd heard about, Yahweh. Now, if you're sensitive to that, Yahweh, okay? That Yahweh is the God, and, and this white man would tell them how they could go to heaven. Imagine that, you know? God speaks still. And God sent his prophets, we read, right? God, God spoke in, at sundry times in various ways uh, to the fathers by the prophets. He spoke to them in strange things. I mean, you think of Ezekiel, you know? He says to Ezekiel, now cut your hair, burn it in the fire, lay on your side, you know, without moving for what, how many days? It was supposed to be almost a thousand days. And then, you know, then he said, now, take human dung and cook bread over it. God, can I use animal dung? Yeah, you can do that. Why'd you say human dung? And, but, but then when you could, I don't understand. Those are strange things, but really you read some of the, some of the prophets, there's pretty, you know what I mean, God, weird stuff <laughs> in there, right? Um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Amos was like straight up in your face. Uh, they all had different personalities. God tells Hosea to marry this woman who's a harlot. Uh, just, you know, it's not real Christian stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not what we call or it, what we expect. God has handled things in so many different ways. Even the prophets didn't understand what or why they were doing. In fact, Peter says this, um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
where uh, he said, uh, verse 9, um, of the salvation, the prophets have inquired and they search carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. To them, to the prophets, it was revealed not to themselves but to us. They were ministering they were, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to understand. They're, what's his point? They, they didn't understand. Some of, the, some of the stuff was strange to them. But it's all coming together. In the last days, it's all making more. So when I say last days, I'm saying biblical last days, not what we call last days, like right now before Christ returns. It's been the last days since the ascension of Christ to heaven. That was the beginning of the last days. These last 2,000 years are, biblically speaking, the last days. He spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That's the greatest messenger in other words. He's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made all of the ages. God has spoken to Israel. He's spoken to the world through his son. John writes, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He, the logos, was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him, the logos. And without the logos, nothing was made that has been made. And then he goes on, verse 14, he says, and then the logos became flesh. The Logos became flesh. The Word became flesh, and, and he dwelled among us. So Jesus, from eternity past, because he had no beginning, he's always been there. This is a powerful idea. I mean, it should be a powerful idea to us, but to the Jews, a very powerful idea, the idea of Logos, the Word. The word, the word uh, to any of us, if we think about it, but to, to a Jew, word is the expression of an idea, okay? So Jesus is the logos. He's, he's the word. He's the full expression of the Father. When you see Jesus, you're seeing the Father. And certainly we're talking in time past. All of God is represented in Jesus. I mean, let's, let's you know, who in, in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, but just by a spoken word. We'll get to the rest. So everything about him is represented in Jesus Christ. And yet we read, you know, we read it at Christmas time, but do we get it? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem in Ephrathah, though you're the smallest of all the little burbs in Judah, out of you shall come one who is, listen, out of you shall come one who is from old, even from everlasting. Think about that. That means the one who's coming has lived forever. That's what he's saying. Again, it sounds like a Christmas card. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's not just Hebrew. That's not just a, a Hebraism, you know, poetry. The child is a child, but he's the son. The son has been given to whom? To us. Not, oh wait, you're not Jewish. Well, Myron is. 
Okay. <laughs> and, okay. There's a couple of us in here who are, right? But, but he, this is Israel he's speaking to. To us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. You know, we, we go on with that. So Jesus is pre-existent. He's also co-existent with the Father and the Spirit. Let's not, let's not forget about the Spirit. Yeah, he's equal with, and yet he's very distinct from the Father. None of us get it. And you can try all kinds of things to try and you know, describe it. You can tell your kids, well, it's like water. You know, it can be in a solid state, a liquid state. A, you know, a, 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 okay. You know, or in A, you get the shell, you get the yohi, you get the album. And you know, that's where the pretzel came from, some monks somewhere who said, well, it's kind of like this, the, the Trinity. So that's why we serve them. Um, <laughs> not really. It's just a way for the uh, youth group to make money. But, um, and, yet, and don't let anybody tell you, don't let your Jewish friends tell you that this concept of Trinity is not in the Bible. It's hard for them to see it, I understand. But right from the very beginning, you know, you got three words that you can use for God, El. We're very familiar with El, which is like singular, God. Eloah, a, a dual. Elohim is the one we're probably most familiar with, Elohim. It's a plural. When you hear the I am, the im, on the end of a Hebrew word, it's a plural, or OT. That's sort of the OT is a feminine, but anyhow, it's, it's, a, it's a masculine plural. But you translate it as God. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, right? God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. But as we begin to go through that passage, God, sometimes we just see him in the pronoun, he. So wait a minute, we have a plural, Elohim, that's represented as a third person masculine singular, he. So how can a plural be represented as a singular? It's a good question for your Jewish friend. Your Jewish friends don't always know much Hebrew, actually, but it's a good question for them. Uh, and uh, even, even the great Shema, you, a lot of Gentiles don't know the Shema, but you know, in English, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. It's actually a plural when you talk about, when you talk about God, or even Yehovah is a, is a plural. We don't see that, uh, you know, on the surface, we think singular, but it's a plural. But the Lord of God, the Lord is Echad. In Hebrew, in English, it doesn't sound like much to us, but in Hebrew, there's two, two words for one. One is echad, the other is yachid. Yachid means one and only one. Echad, like, uh, and, 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 and uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become echad. Two become a singular. So an echad, from a Hebrew standpoint, Echad is formed from a plural. Two come together to create one. And so the Lord of God, the Lord is Echad. See, on the surface, to us, that means nothing. But from a Hebrew standpoint, it really does. Okay, I won't go any further with you. I'm sorry to do that. But uh, some of you appreciate it, some don't. But, um, but he's the heir of all things. 
Uh, certainly, we see that in many places in the Bible. We read it in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in verse 18. He says, let me read it to you. The, um, may your eyes be open, the eyes of your understanding or the eyes of your hearts be opened to know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his, that's Christ, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. We think that we inherit Jesus. No, 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 no. He inherits us. Sounds weird to us because we think he's over all things. Why does he inherit? No, he's the heir of all things, including you. And for the joy that was set before him, meaning you, to be with you, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He's the heir of all things. That's what it says here. I won't go into it. Anyhow, um, being the brightness of God's glory or the radiance of God's glory. I mean, think of the sun. I mean, that's the, that's the only thing we can really think of when we think of brightness or radiance. And we think of the sun, I, I always forget, there's all these different numbers I come across, but what, it burns at about four and a half billion tons a second, something like that, um, which is, that, that's enormous to me. But I, I guess it's going to be around for a little while, it'll be okay. Um, but that's, you know, that's something that's really bright and, 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 you know, and yet it's nothing compared to Christ. Jesus is better. He doesn't burn up. Um, but Jesus is better being the brightness or the radiance of his glory, being the express image of God's person. The, the idea of the express image, we kind of get this idea of minting a coin, you know, where you're stamping something out. Well, he's not stamped out. He's everything that is in Christ is the Father. Many of us know this, but let's remember it. When creation occurred, who did the creating work? It was the Son who did the creating work. The Son is the, is the Logos. He's the Word. He's the expression of all that the Father is. So for him to be the expression of all the Father is, everything originates, you could say, in the Father, but the Son is the, ex is the executor of that. He carries it out. Um, okay, Colossians chapter 1. I mean, it's wonderful stuff. Verse 15, he is the image. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the one who is the invisible one, the invisible God. He's firstborn, prototokos in Greek. He's, a, he's the one who takes first position over, over all creation. By him, by Christ, all things, bless you, by Christ, all things were created, things that are in heaven and things that are on earth, things that are visible and things that are invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, all things were created through him or by him and for him. He's before all things, before anything that we see ever was or is. He's before all things and by him or in him, by him all things consist or all things hold together. So you could take string theory, you could take atomic glue, those ideas, and that's fine if it works for people to understand why things hold together. And, and the things that are, are the concern about why they hold together, when you look at an atom and, and you see you know, all, all these protons 
clinging together, but things that have a, a similar charge should not hold together. We know that. If you take two magnets to put the positive ends that you can't put them, or the two negative ends, you can't do that. And yet here, within an atomic structure, the electrons are not repelling one another, they're, 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 you know, and, and, the, and the protons are not repelling one another. Why? Well, atomic glue, what else could it be? You know, it's, it's, it's string theory. So, fine, if that works for you, it's him. We just read it. By him, all things consist. He holds all things together. Second Peter chapter 3, we learn that one day he'll just go like that. And all that holds them together will be gone. And with a great roar, it'll be gone. He's before all things. In him, all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he would have preeminence. And just go over to chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 9. For in him, in Christ, dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all that is God. You've got to work on that one. Don't just think, oh yeah, I knew that. It's really to say, yeah, yeah, I knew that. But think about what it means. You've got you to think about verse 9 before you go to verse 10. Because once you get that, then you go to verse 10. And it says, and you're complete in him. Wait a minute. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right? Remember, Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. Have I been with you so long, Philip, still you don't know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And here he says, and you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and all power. He's the exact representation. He's the express image of the Father. So he pre-existed all things. He's coexisted with the Father and the Spirit throughout eternity. And he caused the existence of everything that there is. This is who we're talking about. This is who the author's talking about. This is who you are in. And this is who is in you we walk around with the worst image of ourselves. If we would just think about this for a moment and realize who we really are and the value that, 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 is, in, that is in us, not intrinsic because of, because of ourselves, but because of who indwells us. Just starting with justification, you're justified we're not righteous because of ourselves. It's the righteousness of Christ who indwells us. Yeah, I know I got to end. So, <laughs> hey, you're new around here. You know, I, I'm being nice to you for a while, but who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. That, that may, so so he's, he's over all the angels, that's, and the angels have ranking, so over the, the, over the seraphim, you know, the burning ones, seraphim, the cherubim, the archangels, and the garden variety angels. I'm sure there's other you know, types of ranks too. Any old angel, he's, he's over them all. So he's... He's caused the existence of all things from the really, 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 really big stuff to the teeny, 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 tiny stuff. By him, we're told, all things 
consist. And he says, when he had by himself purged, when he had by himself, remember the, 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 the high priest, as we read through the Old Testament, brought someone else's sacrifice before God. Christ first offered himself and is high priest. So there's a, this, and that becomes a theme that works through this because Paul is going to draw a comparison to this type of a priest compared to someone who comes from the Levitical background. Okay, When he had by himself purged, think of what purge means. That means completely gone. Completely gone. Oh, but I did some more and I got some more sin in me. No, you don't. You're still free. Yeah, you want to confess those sins, but you're, they don't hang on you. They're, they're not staining you. He's already purged all of that. What the blood of bulls and goats could never have done, the blood of Jesus Christ has done. And when he did that, when he had purged all of our sins, he sat down. There, now, remember, this is a Jewish audience. They understand what the tabernacle is. A lot of us may not. That's why, you know, when we've gone through Exodus and other those, I've said, study the tabernacle. It's so important. There's no seats in there. There's no seats. The priest didn't say, you know, hey, let's have lunch. We'll sit down in the holy place. No, no. You don't sit anywhere because you're always working. It's always working. It's always do, 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 do. In Christ, it's done. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Why is that important? Because these, these offerings that come day by day, the, the sin offering, even the incense offerings, all those things, once a year at Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, if you prefer, if you're from Long Island. Um, <laughs> and Yom Kippur, once a year, the high priest could enter behind the veil into the holy of the holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But there was no sitting down. It had to continue. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And when Christ was crucified, when he said, it's finished, and there was a great earthquake, and that veil 86 feet high in that temple was torn eight inch thick linen and woven linen eight inches thick was torn from the top to the bottom not the bottom to the top so men didn't do that God did it God said we're open for business anyone may enter now because the blood of the final sacrifice has been made that's who we're talking about that's who we're talking about. Hallelujah. That's who we're talking about. Let's stand.